This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department. Shane, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. I'm glad to be here. Shane, today we're talking about your favorite topic, zero trust. But we're not just talking about your favorite topic of zero trust. We're going to dig a little deeper and talk about maybe some asset management and things that kind of fall under this big umbrella that we all love to talk about. So let me start with the basic question. Let's discuss USCIS's approach to zero trust. What's it look like today? I'm going to say we fell into zero trust a long time ago. We started doing it more out of out of necessity, less out of because we were so forward thinking, so amazing at what we were doing. Uh, USCIS started its journey into cloud a long time ago. And, and in doing so, we learned a lot of hard lessons very early on, usually through some spectacular failures internally, obviously nothing nothing externally. But from that, we, we took a lot of really interesting things that we took away from that from a security perspective. And one of them was to start recognizing that there was a lot more we could do with cloud than we ever thought and imagined possible. And on the security front especially, but it really made us and forced us to sort of rethink dynamically how, not only just how we approach security, but also how we staff security, how we instrument, how we, how we apply tools to security and the things we went about and how we did it. And so our approach really started kind of organically and we just started working our way towards this lofty goal. It wasn't, and then about in 2019 or so, we fully recognized what we were doing. We kind of kind of had this aha moment. We actually incorporated it into some of our enhanced security plans. But really, our, our approach has always been more or less the same. We viewed this as such a monumental sort of undertaking. So we took a very agile approach to it. You know, we started small, we failed a lot, learned a lot, failed forward, and then did, we did it again. You know, we just kind of kept entering, you know, kept moving and, and kind of incrementally working towards our this lofty goal of zero trust. But we also viewed this not as a project, we viewed it as more of a journey, and that we were always going to be on this journey. It was never going to end. We're always going to be doing continuous zero trust. It was just going to be a concept of, of how we operated it and not something that we are going to achieve. And, and we also knew very, very wrong, this was not a tools discussion. It was for, it was a, not, and a nor, nor was it a, just a one and done. It was like, this was all encompassing. And, and so we started out defining trust. We started talking about how does trust degrade over time? How does geography impact trust? You know, how does behavior impact trust? How does time impact trust? And cloud enabled us to really factor in all these things in a very automated fashion. And in doing so, of course, that that the automation is really what made it was key for us. Cloud enabled that with the APIs. And now we could begin doing things that we never could do on-prem. We didn't have the resources to do it. It wasn't just sort of physically, it wasn't possible, but cloud enabled it. And so we really started down that journey and we started looking at, we kind of had, we actually did it with seven parallel p- pillars, I guess. Um, we looked at things like, you know, we looked at users, devices, networks, application workloads, um, automation and orchestration, security vulnerability or visibility and analytics, and then data. And those were sort of our big seven pillars. I think it's more of a model, more like the IC is doing, unless like what the CISA is doing, but in, in conceptually they're, they're relatively the same. And, but that was our, that was our approach. That's how we, that's how we've approached it. That's how we've gone, gone after it and, and sort of been working at it for the last several years. It's interesting that it, it's, that it, it kind of happened organically. And you said you mentioned there's an aha moment. And, and what was that aha moment? Was it, it was cloud driven, but we had we had come under threat, I guess is the best way to put it, by a significant nation state player. 
And in doing so, we were forced to kind of rethink our security plans and, and what we envisioned for our, because, you know, you base your security plans on your threat landscape, you know, what you perceive to be your threat landscape, what, what are the threats that, 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 that your organization faces, and then you build your security towards that. Well, when we became aware that there was nation states targeting us more so than just out of, you know, this was very targeted, actually. We knew we had to make some changes. We knew that we had to adjust our threat or the way we approached security based on that new information. So we sat down, we started writing out this new strategic plan based on that. And when we were looking at it, of course, that forced us to review what we were doing and what we needed to be doing. And that's kind of when that aha moment occurred. It's like, oh my gosh, we've been working our way towards this. We've been doing things. We, you know, we started in doing some of the foundational things that one needs, like secrets management. You need secrets management in an automated fashion to do zero trust. You need to be able to automate your certificates. And that's something we started doing very early on because we needed it for cloud. You need to have built in security automation at your core. I mean, your whole SOC has to run around that. And even, and it expanded it out even to include our entire security program. It wasn't just we were automating the SOC, we were automating all of security, documentation, risk management, governance. And so we, it was really, just sort of us organically moving in that direction. And then it's us realizing that we were actually doing zero trust. And, and honestly, in my view, zero trust is just really, really finite cyber hygiene. It's all we're talking about. It's not, you know, we've replaced this really cool, fancy smancy term around it, which I really despise. And, and but in the end of the day, it's just cyber hygiene. That's all it is. It's just unbelievably very finite, very applied at a very macro level cyber hygiene. I think it's nice when you put a name on something. It's, it's funny, I talked to Chris Cleary over at uh, the, the Navy Department, and he very similar perspective as you in terms of not just, yeah, the name's great, and this is the name today, and tomorrow we'll name it something else, but it all goes back to that basics. What are you doing to protect yourself, and how are you doing it, and where does it go? That being said, one of the pieces that you, that key to any effort to improve your cyber hygiene or through a zero-trust approach is that architecture piece. Are there areas that you said we need to focus first on? And I know high value assets and the databases and systems that are most important to USCIS for its mission is probably the answer, but from an architecture perspective and, and then I'll throw in there the remote work piece too, because that's obviously been a, something we've talked a lot about the last few years. How do those two things kind of impact your approach to zero trust? So I'll start with the remote work piece first. Interestingly enough, the stuff that we had done on our just sort of on our own, un independent of, of of COVID or anything else, um, as an agency, with some of the decisions we had made, it set us up really well for going remote. We had kind of stopped issuing desktops. Everybody had laptops, for example. I mean, you know, hardware was a big deal. You know, in the very early days of, of COVID, people were, who came into the office often had desktops. They didn't even have laptops. So, you know, even even basic things like that. We as an agency had made that corporate decision a long time ago just to issue standardized around laptops. It's just easier to deal with as a form factor. And let's do that. From a security perspective, though, we had been operating, we had a very large sort of mobile workforce to begin with. You know, we had refugee teams traveling overseas all the time. Our service centers routinely had a third of their people out on remote on a daily basis. So we were, and every day we had six or 7,000 people remote. It wasn't the entire agency, but we were used to working with remote workers. It was just a normal day of occurrence for us. I have to be truthfully honest, from a security perspective, we did not notice a difference. I wouldn't, nothing changed from our perspective. We operated the same, we did all the same things everything kind of remained the same. I mean, the fact that they were all remote made almost no difference. Now, USCIS got impacted differently than most federal agencies. We are more like a business. You know, we are fee for, we are a 
$4 billion plus agency that it gets almost all of its money from fees. Those fees are generated when we actually perform work. If we're not working, meaning we shut our buildings down, we shut down all the, our avenues into our, our into getting, providing services to, you know, in the immigration arena. That also means then that we're not generating funds. And so we, like a good business, we, we took a hit and it was a, it was a tough year for us. But, you know, security wise, we actually did pretty well. You know, but and the first, go back and your first question, you know, what did we focus on first? I don't think we ever really approached it that way. We were moving so fast into the cloud. It was more of us trying to stay in front of it. And we we sort of just, like I said, it was very organic and how it, how it all occurred. And not only that, the way we approach development, the way we embed security and development, it was all kind of happening at the same time. There wasn't really a, a conscious thought to prioritize one thing or the other. It's just not how we did it. Um, I'm not saying it's the best way to go about it. There's definitely value add in, you know, in prioritizing your high value assets. If I had to do it over again, I would have. But we weren't consciously thinking about it that way. You bring up this idea of hardware, software, or everyone had laptops. Hardware was a big deal in the early days of COVID. Let's maybe go down that path a little bit, not just from a COVID perspective, but from a zero trust perspective. Asset management is a key piece to this idea of, of understanding who's on your network, what's on your network, and what's impacting. And, and then there's managed devices versus unmanaged devices and applications. Walk me through how you're looking at both the asset management side of it and then the, the device management side of it. That is obviously, you know, devices are a key piece of any zero trust strategy. And it really goes back to your, this concept of an attack surface, which is your, you know, your continuous discovery, inventory, classification, prioritization, and security monitoring of all of your digital assets as well as your hardware. And from my perspective, having a 100% understanding of your devices on your network is critical for day one. You don't do zero trust without it. If you only have 50% of your known assets that you have control over, don't even bother doing zero trust because you really got to fix that problem first. It is not easy. You know, we are an agency, we are a cloud agency, but even so we have a lot of, we have 160, 170,000 endpoints. You know, we have cloud assets that will generate, you know, a thousand new endpoints every hour and then shut them all down just as quickly. So staying on top of that, you know, that's where this, this focus in on automation becomes critical. And because you're, you're going to, the automation is going to do a couple of things for, for you. One, it's going to verify and, and ensure that the things that are coming onto your network are yours and, and are verified that this is going to be done through your certificate automation and you're, you've got tokens issued to all the proper devices. And so it, it's going to, that's going to be the first level of authentication for you. But is it in line with what it should be doing? So there's a behavioral component to this. And again, this is where your automation kicks in. There's no human, there's not enough humans on the planet to monitor this kind of stuff. You're talking about terabytes upon terabytes of data being generated every day just, just to monitor this. And, and so your automation kicks in and starts asking these questions for you. And is this device ours? Is it in line with what it's supposed to be doing? Does it align with the other things around it that are doing similar things? Is it talking somewhere that it shouldn't be talking? Is it out of sequence? There's all these sort of behavioral things that you have to be looking for. Because in, in the world that we live in, you know, it's really easy to spot the spikes in the things when outside the bell curve, which was just monstrously huge. And oh my goodness, that's that's terrible. We should go look at that. But in in the in this world, we're really looking for these really non-normal. These are like little tiny bumps on the bell curve, which no human could ever find. But you hope your automation can kind of pull from the stacks as as things occur. Not easy. It's just it's a really challenging thing to do and to get right. And it's something that you sort of just iterate towards on a constant basis, because as your environment changes and shifts and moves and they deploy new stuff, new applications are being moved, um, you have to stay on top of that and in front of that. And so it requires a, a considerable amount of close coordination 
you know, with your development teams, with your engineering teams. So it's, it's really a very integrated thing, integrated approach that you have to take. Shane, there's a lot more I want to dig into when we talk about asset management. But first, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue that conversation. Sure. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Shane, before break, we were talking a lot about this idea of asset management. And you made a comment early on in our discussion about you have to start with 100% of the devices on your network. That is critical from day one. If you don't have that 100% baseline, then don't bother doing zero trust. Get that 100% first. How did you all go about getting that 100%? Because the next sentence you said was, Cloud assets generate a new endpoint every hour in some cases, and then they yeah. shut down the next hour. To me, that's it's just kind of crazy. It, it the is, way a, it is a mind-boggling problem to solve. And, and I, you know, I say one hundred percent. Honestly, you're, you're iterating towards one hundred percent. I'm not sure anyone ever truly achieves one hundred percent. What you're really striving to do is is one hundred percent of accountability to the extent that's possible. Now, I will say that hardened assets, things like laptops and you know, hard servers, those are a little easier to do. They don't, they don't tend to come and go as, even, as frequently. You can maintain a good solid inventory of those. You'll often have stuff deployed to them. You'll have your endpoint detection capabilities built in. You're gonna have a lot of functionality there. That's a little bit easier to do. And I think there's a lot of really great tool sets out there that'll help you do that. And, and then a lot of it is just taking all the data, pulling it together into a single view and then generate, and then of course, having all your behavioral analytics running across that. Obviously there's a lot of workforce changes on the security side that has to go into play of that, but you know, maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But when cloud assets come into play, cloud is very, very different. I, I often say that cloud is just different. It, it's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. You approach it differently, you look at it differently, you secure it differently. And, and so with cloud, you begin looking at, you know, the one, the, the beauty of cloud, the thing that cloud really enables you to do is micro-segmentation on such an epic scale. Now, obviously your infrastructure is already, you know, is already defined by code. So that means your security can be defined by code as well. And you can kind of run those in concert. And so as they define out their networks, you can define out how that, that micro-segmentation works. And micro-segmentation in this case is really how you're going to define this and, and kind of rope it off because you can use those segmentations to control traffic, control flow, and monitor it as well. And so, you know, you may have a thousand endpoints spin up in a single BPC in, in an hour, but you're controlling the entire boundary of that to such a finite scale it really allows you that 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 visibility, the, the capability to understand what's going on, and hopefully, and hopefully, you'll be able to spot anything that comes out the outside that's outside the norm. Now, this also means you're working very very closely with the development teams who are building this stuff. If you're not if you're not in concert with them, there's in the past there's a lot of organizations that just you know they wait till the end for an application to be deployed, and then they try to go in and secure it. In a cloud environment, that's just not going to happen. That's not how life works. You really have to get in front of this ahead of time. You have to build in the foundational elements of your of your cloud tools and monitoring your your how you're going to do your endpoint detection, how you're going to do your behavior analytics, and and then work with the development teams to make sure they're incorporating those get those elements in because they have to be foundational. They have to be there from the very beginning. And and then as they build out, you're helpful. You're helping build and structure those micro segmentations so that they actually make sense. You understand the traffic flowing across them, and that you're capturing it in your logs in the proper fashion. Log capture is, of, of course, is almost is just as critical and, and, and as much as needed as anything else, because that's that's going to be your view in. That's kind of going to how you're going to know if something's awry. 
And it's, I'm not going to say we're perfect at it. We're, we're always working towards it. It's, that's the journey of zero trust is my view. One of the things you also mentioned that I, I think relates to this is the human in the loop, right? There's a bumps along the bell curve no human could actually find. Automation has to do it. But then once those bumps are spotted by automation, then we obviously know that humans have to step in. Is that the process that you're using today? And that's where it is. Yeah. you raise so, the level of, of low value, high value work that we love to talk about. It's funny. We started down, we started doing security automation five, six years ago, I guess. And, and we started out at it. My, I had a, one of the guys who worked for me, he really was big into it. He really wanted to try it, really wanted to do it. And I was, I was a little bit less convinced at the time. I, I recognized its value, but I wasn't sure I wanted to invest the kind of resources into it. And so we went back and forth. We finally agreed to try it. Well, we failed at it the first like, two years we were trying to do it. Uh, and by failing, I mean completely failed. Learned a lot, learned how not to do it, and then came back and by about the third year, we started getting it right. And in the first year, we were so excited, that, you know, because one of the things we would do is we'd say, okay, we're gonna automate the creation of tickets. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you generate 10,000 tickets in a year, it's a big deal. And, and But we also know how much time it takes to generate a ticket. So we were able to factor in, okay, if every time we generate a ticket, it's you know 0.5 hours that we save, that's $150 an hour labor rate. So we know how much money we're saving. It's, a, it's a, how much money we're, we're generating or saving by doing these automations. And I think in the first year, we were super excited because we hit like $900,000 in automation savings. We thought that was the coolest thing since sliced bread. Well, jump forward five years and on average year, we'll do $20 million in savings. That's, that's normal for us now. I mean, and it's just accelerating faster and faster and faster because we quickly realized that that automation was so critical. Well, it also did some other things. It changed the very nature of our SOC because now I didn't need anybody staring at a screen looking for alerts because I had automation for that. And so when something would happen, an alert would pop, it, the automation would automatically go out, collect all the relevant logs, pull user logs if it was warranted, do a bunch of analytics on it, pull the whole thing forward and present a package to our analysts to go look at. So really what the automation has done is it's removed all of that sort of grunt work that needed to get done. It's already making a bunch of decisions on, on our behalf based on what we've told it to do. And then it only pulls forward what's relevant for the analysts. So it didn't actually change the very nature of not just my SOC, it changed the actual workforce that we employ. And now what they get is they actually get to look at things, you know, almost a complete package a security package that they can make an assessment on. And then based on that assessment, they can tell the automation to go back and fix this or do this or alert this, or maybe it's something significant enough that we have to go further up the chain. But it, it's really about making good decisions and providing them the right information to make that decision. That's really where the automation comes in. And it, and it really is, it's it because it's constant, it's ongoing, it's able to detect things and do things that we simply are not capable of doing. You know, the automation coupled with the, the right kind of workforce behind it is really, really critical. With there, you may be a little bit of a curveball, Shane. So if you, if, you, <laughs> if you swing and miss, don't worry about it. Has there been a time that you'd be comfortable talking about that automation said, uh-oh, you need to fix this today? Is, is there anything you would maybe point to? Again, I know you have to keep it at a very high level. I, I realize that there's some sensitivities here. But just to give folks, hey, this is not just in the ether. This is really making a oh, difference. It, it happens every day. Whether it's catching malware in our email, whether it's capturing system failures, we've had it capture viruses that are starting to take off. We've had it, the automation's basically saved our bacon on more case times than I care to remember. And it's not that it's seeing things that we couldn't see, it's just doing it at a scale and a speed that we're not capable of doing. 
So I'm not, I don't want to suggest that that the automation is is running my world. It's not, but it's definitely augmenting it. And and we becoming more, and I'm going to say it, we are becoming more and more dependent on it and and much more so, you know, and then of course, when I started looking at it, I realized very quickly that once we saw the success with the SOC, we realized that, hey, the, the rest of the security program has to follow suit. So we started looking at how are we going to automate risk management? And so we've started automating that. How are we going to automate governance? We've started automating that. Even even asking questions and started, we've just started doing automation on documentation. I'm kind of done with them generating Word documents and typing them all out. I don't need to do that anymore. We can automate that. And, and really the ultimate end game here, if you really look at what we're trying to accomplish, it's really to drive the entire security program towards a threat hunt model. And, and, and you do that by freeing up all these resources because the more, the more automation I put in place, the more resources I'm freeing up, the more humans I'm freeing up to the, who then can go start asking questions about these non-normal events. They are the ones who are gonna go looking for the things that, that don't look quite right. You know, or, or they just get curious about things. I've often called it curiosity security because it really is about the curious. And you start employing a lot more threat hunting type type individuals. So you're really actually changing your workforce along with this. It's really a, it's a critical part of the journey. I love that move toward a threat hunt model. I think uh, you have to go on the offense to play pretty good defense sometimes. And I think that's kind of what you're getting to here. And, and the workforce has got to understand their offensive defensive efforts. Shane, let's take a quick break. There's plenty more to dig out and there's plenty more to talk about, but we're going to take a break and then we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Now, Shane, before break, we're talking, uh, obviously, we're having the whole conversation about zero trust, but the last segment talked about the workforce and some of this idea of understanding the automation piece and understanding the importance of knowing when to react and when not to. I want to jump into this idea and continue to talk about asset management, because you have to understand not just what's on your network, but also inside and outside your perimeter. And we know from the discussion of zero trust, The perimeter is dead, but talk a little bit about what steps you're doing to to address the inside, outside perimeter, known or new assets, unknown assets that kind of pop on your network. How are you dealing with that challenge? Well, it's so funny you bring this up because I still, to this day, it was three years ago, a good friend of mine who happened to work for me at the time, he's left and gone to other greater things, but he and I were having this sort of semi-discussion. And at that time, USCIS was basically almost completely in the cloud. And it kind of dawned on both of us that, you know, we're in the cloud and the perimeter is just something we pretend is there. And it was, the, it, it, to me now, I look back and I go, how did we not realize this before? But really, you know, when you say the perimeter is dead, you know, with cloud, there is no perimeter. You, you kind of define it for yourself and you pretend it's there. It's like, oh yeah, there's a perimeter there, but, it, but it's very squishy. I mean, it, it can be there one second and it'll be gone the next. And it's all driven by code. And this was driven home very in a, in a very epic way for us when we had a, we had a, a one of our very early on systems that we moved into the cloud, and we accidentally made it public. It literally just accidentally. Um, now there was no exposure, there was no, no harm, there was no damage because there was no data there yet. We had just actually put this, the front end up, 
And it suddenly someone went, hey, this is an internal only cap, right? Well, why can I get to it from the internet? And it dawned on us that we had made it public. And then we started looking into it and everyone freaked out. And then we found out there was no data, there's no damage, there's no harm, no foul. It's like, oh, whoops, our bad. But you know, it, it, it was one of those very early on lessons that taught us that cloud, you define the perimeter based on code. And that's literally what it was. It was a code switch. And we, you know, one of the things that cloud enables you to do is turn things on and off and make them public versus not. So, so when you talk about perimeter in a cloud environment or in a zero trust environment, there really isn't a perimeter. It's what you define it to be. And, and so I, I think the real question then is, you know, what do you permit within, what do you permit within your arena of control versus what you don't? And then defining that, that perimeter is always forever changing. And, and I love what the OMB guidance has done along this, their, 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 uh, you know, their uh, plan for implementing zero trust. In it, they have this requirement, this crazy wild notion to take a completely internal application and put it out on the public internet. Well, 10 years ago, it had suggested something like that. You, they would have thought you're out of your ever loving minds. But cloud technologies, and, and, and if you apply proper zero trust controls and, and, and behavioral analytics and all the things that you need to go around that, you know what? It's completely and utterly doable. And it's going to revolutionarily change the nature of how IT is, is operated and, and done within the federal space and the private space as well. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see that. I, I think if you've been doing this long enough, you see it. I, I no longer think of things as perimeters. It's just not a healthy way to look at it. Um, we we will talk about control planes. We talk about how we control data flows and, and how we understand what has the right to interact with what, whether it's public or non-public, whether it's internal versus external, it's kind of irrelevant because the conversation should really be around how you control it, how do you monitor it, and, and then ensure that the right, the, right, the right people are connecting with it at the right times. If those people happen to be external to your agency, well, that's great. That's just the type of users that are connecting to it. So it's really, from my perspective, it's, it's really gets down to, you know, who has the right to do what, when, and, and then how do I control that and ensure that the right things are happening? And it's really less about a perimeter. The perimeter is just not there anymore. It just hasn't been for a long time. We just quite, haven't quite fessed up to it yet. But what happens, so if Shane Barney has a personal iPhone and you're trying to connect to your email in the cloud, that's, you know, let's just say for sake, how do you know that that's happening or, or so that, when that a new device goes back to you know for us it's, it's all about automation um and this is where our, i mentioned earlier some of the foundational pieces and one of them was certificate management and, and for us we control things with certificates um those certificates tell me who you are what you are and then that ultimately drives you know the roles and responsibilities you're allowed so this is that whole auth you know uh, the authentication and authorization who are you? Who are you to me? And what are you authorized to do in my network? You know, it's the it's the roles that you are granted. So we control that through you know a very very centralized ICAM program. And, and we started. We're actually probably one of the best in the agency, especially in DHS, at doing ICAM. Lots of reasons for why that's the we're the best. And I say that not because it's me who who did it. I have this amazing ICAM team who did it. I just happen to be the the, the lucky guy who sits at the top and gets to take credit for it. But, you know, really, you know, I think some of the things that we've done with that ICANN program enables that capability up front. And that's why I said earlier, if you're going to do zero trust, make sure you get your certificates under control. You've got to have that, that automation. You've got to have that finite control over your certificates because it's going to drive that, that authentication and it's going to help you determine what roles and rights those, those, those users, those assets, whatever it is, 
has to do on your infrastructure. I mean, that's, that's how I talk about iPhones. That's how I control it. And just to be clear about this, so if, if nation state actor X is trying to break into your network and there's no, there's the handshake that happens between the certificate on the network and the certificate on their phone won't happen. So therefore, the hope is that, that they won't get on your network. And, and that no we handshake. see it. I mean, it's not that it won't happen. I also want to know that, that the attempt is occurring. So it's a, you know, you want both. So yes, that's exactly what happens. And it has happened actually. Um, we've had numerous occasions where that's happened or, or they take a spoofed cert and they attempt to utilize it in a way that's not meant to use. You know, it's not enough just to issue certs. It's that you have to understand what exactly that cert authorizes that asset to do. Um, and in one case we had a, a, an actor who attempted to use one of a spoofed cert. They spoofed the cert. I don't remember if it was from a workstation or if it was a server or vice versa or something. But whatever, whatever, wherever they took it from and wherever they were attempting to use it were not the same thing. And and it, and our our automation actually caught it and, and and alerted us to the fact that this was happening. Now we didn't allow them in because the cert was different and, and and it didn't work. But we were able to shut it down regardless and we were able to turn that off. Um, but we were we became very aware of it. And then of course we got paranoid and started looking everywhere for it. But we didn't find it, but it was a one-off. But it does happen. And that's, that's why having that finite control of your certificates is really critical. Token, token authentication is how you do asset management. And it's, it's, if you don't have a good, a good handle on it, you're going to get yourself in trouble very quickly. I appreciate the example. I think that's a great one because uh, people hear rules, responsibilities. It's a term we hear a lot about, but not always understood about specifically how it works. And it's actually a great segue. You talked about ICAM a little bit. Single sign-on is another piece of this, and especially as you move to the cloud. Is there an authoritative source of information you have to make sure those single sign-on capabilities work? And, and again, grant those access. That goes back to, I think, what you were just saying, which is the tokens and the, and the, and the and token authentication and the certs, right? You know, USCIS is actually a leader in single sign-on. We have we are the only agency that I'm aware of that has 100% single sign-on for all of our users, 100% single sign-on for all of our applications. Now we did that. The way that actually occurred is interesting. We, it goes back all the way to our Mark Schwartz days. When Mark Schwartz was our CIO, he made the conscious decision to use, put ICAM inside the security shop and make it reportable to the CISO. At the time, and actually to the largest extent right now, still, that's a rarity. Um, most of the time, ICAM shops are sometimes through the physical security organizations or they're within the development teams or something like that. But rarely do you see them reporting up through CISO. And why that was important is, is we tied it actually, we tied single sign-on to the fact that you that you wanted an ATO. Everybody has to have an ATO, an authorization to operate within, within our environment. It's part of the FISMA requirements. It's a legal requirement. You, you, any government agency, you just don't get around that. So when what we did is we said, oh, you want an ATO or you want a risk waiver or you want new POAMs open for whatever you're doing, fine, do you have single sign-on? Oh, you don't? Oh, well, once you have it, get, come back to me and let me know and we'll, we'll talk. And what it did is instantly overnight, all of our dev teams wanted to have single sign-on because that was the only way they were going to get through the process. But we also did a couple of things. We also made it easy. Um, I, you know, I'm a big fan of, of easy button security. And, and by making single sign-on an easy button for them to utilize, you know, it freed it freed up resources on their teams because no longer did they have to deal with it. They just pointed at our ICAM program and oh, voila, there you are. You know, and that was step one. And single sign-on was one part of it. But we also had to build in a centralized role capability. We wanted to be able to control the roles and access capabilities within. So you know, defining out all the roles within each of those systems, and then having a central means by which that's granted and controlled. 
and, and we again we, we took this easy butt approach to it because they were more than happy to allow my ICAM team to go off and develop all these roles and all the workflows that was needed and develop the approval processes because then they didn't have to worry about it. They just kind of gave me the requirement, we did it, and, and then it was on my team to deal with it. Um, it also helped with audits too, because whenever the IG would come in and ask about stuff like this, they would go, oh, well, go talk to ICAM, it's their problem. So they loved that part of it too. So all these things kind of led to the fact that at this stage in our as an organization, I, we have very, we're central, all of our roles are centrally controlled, all of our single sign-on is centrally controlled, and it, it is a critical piece to moving into zero trust. I mean, you've got to have that because you've got to have identity and you've got to have roles because you have to understand who's authorized to be on your network and you have to understand exactly what they're authorized to do. And then of course, you're gonna have to take it the next step. And that next step is you've got to apply the exact same philosophy to all of your devices as well. You know, devices in a zero trust world, they, they too have identity and they also have roles and they also can be controlled. Those roles control what they are capable of doing. So you have to be able to apply that to all of your devices as well. So it's a very complex thing to do. Um, and it's not something you're gonna do overnight. It took us five years to accomplish it. These organizations that are just starting out on the zero trust journey and they don't even have single sign on yet, probably ought to get that first, you know, work on that, finish that first, and then start doing some of these other pillars because you can't do them in concert. There's, there's no way to do a lot of what's required under the zero trust model without having identity and roles completely locked down and, and, and really captured in a very finite way. And we've been talking about identity and roles and responsibilities for the better part of, uh, feels like 16, 17 years now, ever since uh, HSPD <laughs> yeah. 12 came out and said- Oh yeah, hey, I, everyone... I, don't, I don't even mention, HSPD 12 is hilarious. Like, oh yeah, everyone's like, oh yeah, you got an executive order now for cyber. I'm like, yeah, well, we had that with HSPD 12. So, you know, exactly. look how we're at now. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Shane, let's take a quick break and come back. We can, we can finish up our conversation. Sure. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Shane Barney, the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Shane, before break, we were uh, talking a, a fair amount about this idea of a comprehensive view in your network. You give us a great idea, example of single sign-on and, and kind of what it does and why it's important. And the other piece of this that we should talk about is the data side. And we have been talking about data throughout a lot of our conversation today, but specifically data-driven cybersecurity decisions is, is getting bigger, especially when it comes to asset management, attack surface management. How are you all using data and how do you make sure your, all your tools talk to each other and give you data that you can use that's not contradictory or one tool doesn't understand the data that you're getting from another tool? How do you make it all fit together? A lot of work. So you're right, data, zero trust and, and data go hand in hand. I mean, I, it's, it is a data-driven type of security. And, you, and even just looking at the vol, sheer volume you're generating, USCIS on a given day generates about eight terabytes of data in logs just in a single day. It, it is an unbelievable amount of data. And we're adding, we're adding about a terabyte a year. We anticipate by within the next three years, we'll probably be pushing 10 to 12 terabytes, depending on, on a few factors. So to say that the data is important, it is. Now, 
too much data and not enough data are, are, are kind of the, the same problem. You know, you, you, if you get too much, you get overwhelmed, you can't do anything with it. If you get too little, you don't get enough information and you, you get caught with your pants down, kind of. So, you know, where do you, how do you find that, that kind of sweet spot in the middle? Where do you, how do you balance all that out? Um, and I, if I'm being blunt honest about it, we haven't figured that one out yet. Um, we ingest everything at this point. We have kind of taken the philosophy that it's easy to take everything out and we'll sort it out later. And it's worked for us so far, although we're starting to kind of reach a point, a tipping point where the amount of volume of data we're bringing in is becoming very, very, very difficult to deal with. And it requires a very concentrated effort and, and kind of a strategy and how to handle it. But in, you know, in terms of the framework, the data, you know, data security within that zero trust sort of a framework or architecture, you know, you're really talking about data discovery and classification. You're talking about data activity monitoring, and you're also talking about data security analytics and integration within the identity threat intelligence and response tools. You know, given kind of an end-to-end -end zero trust coverage. So you know, those are three very, very complicated tasks that you undertake. You know, let's just start with data discovery and classification. There's kind of two fronts to that. There, there is this log side of it. You know, what are, what are your systems doing? What are your users doing? How are they interacting? There's all those pieces. But there's another side of that where the classification side comes in. And, and here you're, you know, for us, we're relying on our, our, our chief data officer and their office to kind of tag our information and tag our data. Because obviously, you know, USCIS generates as immigration processes a data heaven heavy the data heavy driven process. A lot of information is out there. Not all of it is as critical as everything else, right? So having tagging that data and, and understanding what's sensitive versus non-sensitive helps us focus our attention, obviously. It helps us let's, it helps us make determinations on encryption and how what should be encrypted, what level it should be encrypted, does it need to be encrypted at rest and in, and in transit? Maybe we just need to encrypt it at rest to protect it when no one's using it, but maybe we don't care so much in transit, or maybe this is public information, we don't care about it at all. Um, and, and making those decisions, and we wanna be able to, you know, if we tag it right and do it right up front, it helps us make decisions about that data later on. And if some of that data gets exposed, because it's tagged properly, we instantly know the level of exposure that we have. Maybe it's all public and we just shrug our shoulders and go, oh, whoops, shouldn't do that again, but it's public, we don't care. Oh, our bad, that's like everybody's social security world number in the world. That's bad, let's not do that again. So, you know, having that tagging at that level is very, very critical. And then of course, being able to monitor all of that. And, and that's where we're at right now. Um, my CDO shop is working heavily on getting the tagging in place. We're obviously been building monitoring tools for this for quite a while. But the monitoring tools are not traditional in their sense. The, the more, you know, what we're looking to do now is more behavioral based. It's not just looking for IOCs like the old days. In the old days, you get an IOC, some sort of indication of compromise, and, and you just kind of scan your enterprise. Oh, we don't have it. We're good to go. Thumbs up. But behavioral analytics is a little bit different. Behavioral is looking for those minute in, you know, indications of compromise. They are, they're not necessarily based on an IOC, although they could be, but they're really based on changes in patterns and, and at the very subtle level and you combine that with good network analytics to kind of start ferreting that out and that's actually where we've been driving our security organization for quite some time and then the last of course is this analytics integration with uh, not just with the identity piece so from my perspective identity is going to be ICAM, but we also have uscis maintains about uh, 14 million or so use public user accounts for people who do who come seek immigration benefits from us so those are we have to factor those in as well um but it's really how we integrate the you know who has the right to see what and when they have a right to see it and what are they allowed to do and then there's another piece that that's a little more difficult to do and we're just starting to do it now is making determinations of when we should question your identity 
And, and that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, and it gets back to sort of some of the things I brought up earlier about trust where, you know, you have to be able to find the geography of trust and the time of trust. And if, if it's been 20 days since we saw you last, do we trust you the same level of if we just saw you yesterday? If you were coming in from Paris yesterday, but now you're coming in from Florida, is that different for us? Should we trust you the same or should we look at you differently? You know, and, and so making those decisions for us. I'm a big, big proponent of the integration of threat intelligence into all this. We have seen such benefits from threat intelligence in, in terms of getting in front of things. It's a very proactive approach to security because it's really looking, from my perspective, threat intelligence is often pre-IOC. In other words, it's really looking what threat actors are doing kind of in the wild. And, and you're kind of assessing that going, oh, hey, it kind of looks like some of these threat actors who who we know have targeted us in the past are using this new thing, whatever this thing is. We better go off and look at that and see if that's something we have to worry about. But being able to do that uh, at, a, at a very enterprise level scale and then apply it all the way down to the micro level requires very specific tooling to do it. And it requires a very heavy, a very, very integrated approach because it's data, data intensive. Um, and then it got, of course, you have to have the right workforce behind it to help run it all. Um, and finally, of course, is this sort of end-to-end -end response capability that one has to have um, in this new world. So as new data fields pop up or new things arise, you know, being able to respond to them, usually you want you want your response almost automated in, in the initial phases because there's so many alerts that pop up that there's no way you could staff to deal with it all. So you, you want to be able to have your our automation is now getting set up. So not does it just it just doesn't automate an alert. It actually will try to resolve it for us and beforehand, whether that's shutting things off, whether that's close, you know, you know, encapsulating a laptop for us. You know, we want it to take action first and then tell us because by the time we, sometimes we get to an analyst, it, it might be too late. And so we want to be able to control that level, that incident response initially. So those are all, that's all data driven. I mean, this is data heavy. I mean, that's why, you know, security teams of the future are going to have data scientists sitting next to their SOC analysts. You mentioned earlier on in our conversation about that SOC and, and the changes happened and, and, and a big piece of it was automation, but the threat intelligence piece, the, the, the different tools that you're using, is that the integration that is, is, is the biggest challenge for a lot of security operation centers? You buy a tool from vendor X and then buy a tool from vendor Y. And if they're not based on open systems and open standards, do they not talk? Is that something well, that- Well, and it goes back to ensuring, like when you're looking at, when we're assessing new tools, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to buy a new endpoint detection tool. First question we're going to ask is, you know, it's got to be API driven. It just has to be. There's no if but wins about it. If you're not an API driven tool, I'm not going to look at you. Shane, there's so much more to talk to you, but unfortunately we are out of time for today. So first, let me thank my guest. Shane Barney is the Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department. Shane, I love the conversation. We could probably talk a lot longer, but we're out of time for today. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great time. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Exonius on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
Hey, electrical contractors. I'm Matt from ABB. Are rising costs and product delays keeping you up at night? We can help you contractor better. ABB's contractor resources are designed to help you increase productivity and profitability on your commercial construction projects. Check out Contractor Better today. Visit go.abb slash contractor better. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu.